Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. When most people think of Canada, it's likely that decade-long domestic terror crisis isn't the first thing that pops into their head. Yet over the course of the 1960s, radical separatists were using improvised explosives to push the agenda of an independent Quebec. So who was setting off these bombs and why? To understand that, we have to go back to the roots of the separatist movement in Canada. Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Paul McGowan. Howdy. How's it going, Paul? Uh, I can't complain. That's good. Yeah. Glad to hear it. Um, and we're going to talk about Quebec today. Yeah, I'm going to try not to use any of my very terrible French. That was actually going to be my first question was whether you spoke any French. Um, I No, every time I try to speak it in Montreal, they just speak to me in English, which well, is kind of insulting, but you know. I mean, you, you probably could have impeccable French and something about you would give you away as an Anglo and they'd still get angry at you. Yeah, I think so. That's all right. We'll use some French, but it didn't stop us when uh, when Gary and I talked about New France. So he, Perfect. he didn't know a lick of French. <laughs> he seems like the kind of guy who would speak a little bit of French, actually. I, he's been all over the world, you would think. I mean, he's got decent German, but yeah, I don't think he has any French, really. That's fine. Uh, I'll, I'll explain any any terms that I need to. I'm not going to pretend like I'm fluent or anything like that either. I just uh, you know remembered a little bit of it from from high school. That's yeah. about it. I will mention before we get going, by the way, that this is probably the first episode I've ever done where I would like really strongly recommend uh, if you haven't gone back and listened to the episode on New France, I would very strongly recommend that you listen to it. It's not actually like required listening, but I think it would really help contextualize a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today because the conquest of New France by the British uh, in the 18th century if not like very like directly or practically, certainly culturally plays into some of the things that we're going to be talking about and is going to be referenced by a lot of the people we're going to be talking about. So if you haven't listened to it, it's a really good episode. Uh, maybe consider listening to it first before you do this one. Yeah, go do your homework. So we're talking about the October crisis, which is probably a name that isn't familiar to a lot of people who aren't Canadian and also maybe a lot of Canadians. Uh, sometimes it's also known as the FLQ crisis. And it was a major domestic terrorist incident that happened in Canada, which I would imagine is not something you normally think of when you think Canada is, you know, this this period of time in the 70s where there were so many terrorist attacks that Canada had to go on like full on lockdown, suspension of certain rights, military presence in the streets. But that's that's where we're headed today. Yeah. Well, and also the reason that this was interesting to me is that 
Yeah, it's it's domestic terrorism. It's this it's I mean, it must have been so tense. And yet and yet I remember covering it in like grade seven or eight history. And it was like it was not more than, you know, half of a class that we spent on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Canada in general is kind of bad for that in teaching history, I think. And that's one of the reasons I was really excited to do another Canada topic. I've had a hard time getting guests to to do Canada topics with me because we're all Canadian and seem to be under the impression that our history is very boring, <laughs> um, which is not true at all. No. But, you know, th things like that do not help the the uh, uh, reputation of it. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it's like anything. It's like the more you get into it, the more you can kind of dig into those details. Generally, the more interesting it gets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, again, like, like you think domestic terrorists and you think Ireland or Palestine or, or Russia or sure, not usually Canada. Yeah. And so I thought this would be a really interesting topic for both Canadians who maybe don't know the full story terribly well and everyone outside of this country who has probably never, ever, ever heard of this at all. Yeah. You know, the last couple of episodes I've done have been like centuries long expanses, like very, very high level um, survey topics. This one, I kind of want to get into the nitty gritty a little bit more. So we're going to focus on actually a fairly short period of time, basically between the Second World War and about 1982 or so. Uh, is is all we're going to cover on this, and and that's just going to give kind of context to this whole era in Quebec history, and I, I think is the best way to kind of bookend both sides of this crisis because we're actually talking about a little over a month of actual time, so we need a little bit on on both sides of it to contextualize it. Yeah, and we're going to start by talking about what Quebec was like around the time of World War II, which is not necessarily the best. Quebec lagged behind the rest of Canada in pretty much any metric that you can think of in terms of just sort of like developmental uh, markers. It tended to be poorer than the rest of Canada. It tended to be less well-educated. It tend to, tended to be less healthy. It was not doing as well. And there's a number of reasons for that. First off, it was more agrarian than the rest of Canada. Like even then the... Uh, even in the prairie provinces to some extent, because at that point in time, uh, a, a larger portion was taken up by, uh, or a larger portion of the population was concentrated in urban centers. So even though there's a lot of like non-developed land, there weren't quite as many people like percentage-wise that were living like a subsistence farming lifestyle, right. if that makes sense. Um, Quebec, it was extremely widespread. The uh, provincial programs were very, very weak. This kind of, in a certain way, goes back to what we talked about in that that New France episode, which is that when Canada was founded, or even, even before the actual Confederation of Canada, Quebec was treated as a distinct society. That's kind of a loaded term in Canada to, to actually call it a distinct or separate society or a distinct nation, but it, it, is, it is actually held up that way. There are considerations given for the French language, for the Catholic religion that aren't really present in other... British territories, uh, or at, uh, you know, as we move forward, British dominions. That is special about Quebec. They were allowed to keep their language. They were allowed to keep their religion. They were allowed to keep their culture and laws, and they continued to do so past Confederation. But part of that was the the amount of involvement of the Catholic Church in Quebec uh, Quebecois society was very heavy, extremely heavy. 
a really good example of this is that when Canada was confederated in 1867, it was mandated that one of the, you know, in, in, during confederation, it was kind of, there was a list of things that like, okay, this falls under federal jurisdiction, this falls under provincial jurisdiction. One of the things that falls under provincial jurisdiction is uh, Department of Education, which Quebec immediately abolished in 1875. They abolished their Ministry of Education? Yes. There was no school board in Quebec. What? Because the Catholic Church was was seen as sufficient to handle educating the youth of Quebec. Well, that seems like a mistake. I mean, again, I will point to that initial comment about their, their level of education being much lower than the rest of Canada. I, I don't think... It's 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 more of a it's more of a case of them depending on the church for virtually all of their social programs where other uh, where other provinces were putting in secular versions of those programs not just education but also uh, healthcare as as the 20th century progresses social safety nets um, these are all things that the church looks after and it's not completely crazy to leave it in the hands of the church that's something that the catholic church has been doing for nearly two millennia at this point in time for most of european history this the church has has handled all of that they've handled healthcare. they've handled education they've handled uh looking after the poor and the sick that's what you turn to the church for and they basically said to the quebecois government you know what don't worry about it we got this still and they'd been doing a fine job up until then, and people didn't see a reason not to let them continue to do so. But it is very different than the rest of Canada. And as modernizations are made in things like education, where they're importing um, educational philosophies from Europe, especially from from Germany, that are, are really better preparing people for... Well, it's it's what's known as like a, a romantic education where you're you're kind of covering everything. You're covering math and also philosophy and also, you know, like getting what we would call a well-rounded education. Yeah. Um, the church's education uh, or idea of education is we'll make sure that you have your religious education and then whatever it is that you specifically need to pr- to prepare for your specific career. And that's about it. And why, why are you learning music and art when I know that you're going off to be a blacksmith? You should probably know a little bit of math and you should be fine. Fair enough. Natural resources were also kind of being sold more or less for a song and almost always to international interests, especially American companies were really pre- prevalent in uh, mining and deforesting in Quebec and were able to do so at very little cost to them. It was a, a very good deal for all of these uh, companies that were coming in. And the result of that is that the people of Quebec were generally well employed if they weren't just kind of working on farms, but that even with so many people employed, they were all working for these these foreign firms that weren't necessarily paying that well. And over half of working Quebecers were working uh, for a wage that was below the poverty line. So employed, wow. but below the poverty line. Yeah. Yeah. Also, there's absolutely no no protection, no practical protection, I should say, of the French language when it comes to business interests because it's in the private sphere, which means that most of these companies are coming in from the United States. Management is speaking English. And so there's really no opportunity for someone who is native Quebecois to break into the management level because they don't speak English. And they don't speak English because, I mean, number one, their their mother tongue is French. And number two, their education has not prepared them to speak any English. Besides, number three, why are we expecting these people to speak a foreign language in their own home? 
yeah a little bit of an unreasonable barrier to advancement um but we'll get to a little bit more of that as we go along one man really dominated quebec politics in this era his name was maurice duplessis and he was premier of quebec from 1936 to 1939 and then again from 1944 to 59 so basically the entire stretch from before World War II until 1960. Yeah, that's, that's one little gap. a nice little run. It's, it's pretty long. And we'll get to this eventually, but he only stops because he dies. Wow. It's, it's a formidable run. And uh, yeah, so the premier is, is um, the, the head of the provincial legislature. So, you know, like a state governor, what have you. And it's really important as we go through to understand that structure of Canada, I think, the idea that it is a federation. There are responsibilities that are delegated to the federal government, and then each province has its own government that has its own areas of responsibility. And there are some overlaps, but in general, everything is pretty well um, portioned out, and therefore the provincial governments have quite a bit of um, very real political power and so to be uh premier of a, of a province is uh it's it's a very pr- uh, powerful position yeah there's a there's a lot of room to uh to make decisions that people will hate you for yeah, that's that's true and speaking of his uh time as premier is known to some people as la grande noirceur the great darkness <laughs> wow maurice duplessis was a man who had a very strong vision for quebec And I'm going to tell you a lot of stuff now that sounds really, really bad. And we'll circle back afterwards, but I do want to stress very heavily that I don't think that Maurice Duplessis was a bad person, or at the very least, I don't believe that he didn't have the interests of Quebec at heart. I think that he loved his province, and I think that despite the fact that his vision of where that province was going was different than basically the flow of history... That's not necessarily an indication that he was uh, he, he was doing a bad job of it. I mean, he kept getting reelected. Right. Not always through the best means, but he did keep he did keep running the province. He ran a party called the uh, the Union Nationale, and it had been formed by him basically as a union between the Conservative Party in Quebec at the time and a breakaway faction of uh, progressive liberals. And progressive kind of means a little bit different thing in the in the 30s than it does now yeah this is the this is the group of people who you know for example a decade earlier would have been responsible for prohibition in the united states right it's it's these ideas of like a strong and and um uh pure society so those are the kind of people who are in his political party uh and those are the kind of people he wanted in his political party he had a very strong connection to uh, the Catholic Church, and often would bring religion into politics, uh, into his own personal politics, his own religion into his politics, and just was not afraid to bring any of that in, which is bizarre for anywhere else in Canada at this point in time. Not that it's it's unheard of, but I think I think politicians in Canada tend to be a little bit more reserved about their faith than you might see from politicians in the United States, and and that had already started in the in the forties for sure. To, to, give, to give a little bit of context, for, for the political parties in Canada, blue is for conservative and red is for liberal, which is backwards for all of our American listeners, I understand. But he used to run on a slogan 
which I, I really like. I like it a lot, which is um, Le ciel est bleu, l'enfer est rouge, which means the sky is blue and hell is red. Okay. So, like, trying to throw the liberals under the bus. Well, blue being the conservatives. Yeah. You follow the conservatives, you're going to heaven. Right. Okay. You follow the liberals and... Yeah. I don't know if I love it. I mean, w- would I respond to it personally, politically today? Probably not. <laughs> I just like... I, I just think it's a really good example of, like, the type of person he is on the campaign trail. Right. That that's the thing that he's going to run under to try and win the premiership it's, of Quebec. It's very clear. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the 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 insinuation there is so uh, so clear and so strong, and it's just kind of like I I can't. It seems so of a different time. And, and using a curse word in a campaign slogan is very bold, and well, I like it. I, I, I yeah, I, I don't think it has quite the same connotation as right, it would but, in English, but but still, yeah. I, I see what you're saying. It's 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 a very strong statement, and I mean, Duplessis was of a different time. I mean, that's that's very much true. That's very much what we're about to talk about. He was strongly anti-communist. And in this, he does very much resemble his uh, his American counterparts at this point in time. We're talking about prime Red Scare era here. And as a result, as an extension of that, he was extremely anti-union. And his time in office was very much characterized by union busting, by making making it harder for people to unionize, which in turn hurts workers' rights a lot and strengthens the, the position of these foreign companies that, that are coming in and getting um, very cheap resources. He he actually attempted to pass several laws that would eliminate unions outright, like uh, uh, make unions illegal, which never actually flew, but the, the, but the fact that he would try that really says something about him. Right. Okay. So my... Again, I'm not the most politically savvy person in the world, but I, I know that like unions are at least kind of important to the political process today. Mm-hmm. So like if you're trying to bust unions, you know, for people who don't make a great living in the first place, like how was he so popular? Because he was very popular with the Catholic Church, which was a very important part of people's lives. He spoke to rural voters a lot more than urban ones and tended to win elections that way. And I mean, that time in history is a little bit weird for unions because because they're so strongly related to communism and because this is the beginning of the Cold War and because there is this Soviet specter looming over the West and it's very easy to take something like a bunch of miners who are saying, listen, we just don't want to spend 16 hours down there breathing coal dust and go, well, these people are political enemies. We can't have this. Right. It's very easy to delegitimize their causes by using uh, ideological rhetoric. Yeah. I mean, unions are unions are a tough one because it's still such a strong force in politics today that in a lot of cases, when people start talking about unions, they're... Uh, their opinions about unions say so much about the rest, like almost everything else about their political leanings, that it's it's a bit of a touchy topic. Yeah. But what I will say is that when you're talking about unions in the 1930s and 40s, what you're not, you're not you're not talking about the kind of unions that people tend to complain about now, which is the 
you know, oh, they're already doing fine and they're trying to get more. And, and the, I, I guess the rhetoric generally tends towards they're being greedy. A lot of what they're fighting for is stuff that we would consider big, basic workers' rights, things like uh, really simple health and safety legislation. And it's very rare that one of these unions is fighting for something that is really infringing on the ability of employers to give employment. Right. And that's that's often what the complaint is about unions today. So I I suppose without without going too much more into, you know, modern unions, I, I would say anytime you hear about a union doing anything like pre nineteen fifty, it would probably be reasonable to side with the union, no matter what your your current standpoint on them is. They're probably fighting for something very reasonable. Yeah. Because if they don't, the employers just take them for everything they can. The rhetoric about, you know, well, you can always just leave and find a better job isn't necessarily true if no one is forcing someone to give them a better job. So anyways, enough on unions, uh, at least for now. Duplessis definitely did have some like really questionable political tactics. Some of these things are going to be like definitely did. Some of these are going to be, there are rumors that he did. And we're going to be very clear about which are which because I'm not looking to defame anyone. He definitely did do some gerrymandering which is the changing of uh, boundaries of electoral districts to your advantage. Yeah. Bunch of that. Whole bunch of that. He may have, he may have bought some votes in rural districts by bringing in things like whiskey and food and household appliances very shortly before elections. Or eliminating coal plants or... (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. He definitely used infrastructure improvements against people in order to try and convince him to convince them to vote for his party as in as long as this district stays liberal you aren't getting that bridge wow so when you say definitely like he is on the record saying this he did this to 12 rivière which desperately needed a bridge did not get it until it went union national wow yeah there were districts, there are stories of districts that were liberal that needed their roads paved. And they, as a community, decided, okay, we'll vote for our Union Nationale in this election so we can just get our roads paved and then we can go back to voting the way we want to, which is just like the worst version of strategic voting I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. No, that doesn't. I mean, I guess you're so it, it's, it's like if he gets elected, but that district didn't vote for him, then. It's such like a weird, it's such like a, like a weird sequence of events that would have to like have him be elected and then prevent them from getting their road. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. It's a little messed up. Yeah. I'm not saying Duplessis is, is perfect by any means, any means, but what he was, was this representation of like an idealized pure land version of Quebec. Like this, this, um, you know. This is what it meant to be like truly Canadian. This is what it meant to be truly Quebecois. This idea that Quebec was better off agrarian. Like the more rural that Quebec was, the better, because that's what Quebecois were meant to be. This idea that the heavier the involvement of the Catholic Church, the better, because that's what Quebec was supposed to be. Right. Um, it, it was like this in in uh, the, the very like traditional sense of the word conservative. It was this like looking back at 
an older version of society and idealizing it. It's very much what you get with some of the, you know, let's go back to the 1950s type stuff that you hear today, where it's kind of like, yeah, you're forgetting all the bad stuff, I think, but I, I see what good stuff it is that you're kind of looking at and liking. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way to go, but like, okay, there's, there's a, there's a version of Quebec that he, there's a vision of Quebec that he's selling. He believed that, you know, language barriers would help keep, Quebec society pure and that, you know, having more English come in would would sully that. And so he was trying to keep less education in place because he didn't want people speaking English. Like it's it's this kind of twisted, but like also very understandable version of of putting clamps on Quebec society. And I mean, I, I'm I'm referencing Duplessis a lot because he's the leader here and, and he was a strong voice in this movement and all of that. It's not like he was the only one. There were a lot of people helping to support the system, right, in the government and without. Um, also within the church, he had a, an incredible amount of support within the church. Right. Were there other parties with a similar platform? Not really. I mean, he had basically coalesced the entire idea of Quebec nationalism under one roof when he had uh, taken basically everyone progressive out of the Liberal Party. Right. Okay. Um, so the Liberals were the main opponent at this time, but never want to see it other than that one four-year term during the war. Yeah. And so he so he had that long run, like the, the two separate runs. How, I mean, in those years, like prior to that, what was it, a 14 or a 15-year run, like how close was the election? That's a good question. I've, I haven't actually looked up uh, election results, but he had a pretty good lockdown on it. He never right. seemed all that worried, partially because of this gerrymandering and other kind of electioneering that uh, that went on. I think I forgot to mention uh, he was accused at one point of vote, uh, vote fixing. Um, there's no proof of that whatsoever, but right. uh, accusations have been made, partially because he seemed so confident and partially because people have a hard time believing that he could actually get votes the way he was. Yeah. I find that more often than not, things like that tend to just be a product of society and not necessarily of nefarious means, but you never know until something definitive one way or the other comes out. You can't really make a uh, judgment call on something like that. Yeah. Near the end of his run, he did start to receive growing criticism. It wasn't as though he was untouchable the entire time he was in office. Even by the end, he was starting to get a little blowback from the church, just a little bit. Specifically, I want to look at something called the 1949 asbestos strike. Asbestos was mined in Quebec. There's actually a town called Asbestos, Quebec. And, you know, we, we didn't really know quite as much about the dangers of, of asbestos at that point in time. And it's a really good fire retardant. So, hey, let's uh, sell it through an American holding company. And, uh, well, they'll make a lot of money. <laughs> oh, those poor miners. They walked off the job. Okay. February 14th, 1949. And they started uh, striking. It was actually an illegal strike, but I mean, here's their demands. They wanted a 15 cent raise. I did check. I think it's about $1.50 today. Okay. So it is actually a small amount. Yeah. Every once in a while you check the inflation and it's like, oh, they're looking for like a $10 an hour raise or something like that. No, it's, it's pretty small. They wanted an extra five cents for night work, so any like any uh, night shifts. I mean, I don't see why that matters when you're in a mine, but but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That's that's a great point. Um, <laughs> they wanted a social security fund set up, so basically a pension. Yeah, and they wanted double pay on Sundays and holidays. Yeah. Okay. 
I mean, especially in a very religious uh, society, that's yeah. a big deal. Yeah. And they just wanted something to be done about all the asbestos in the air. They didn't like breathing it in all the time. But you're mining it. What, what did they think? Okay, never mind. I mean, they could have some fans, man. <laughs> what, what about a really big vacuum and you could just... I mean, that's essentially what they do now. <laughs> okay, so they want, okay, so they're on strike. A very romantic Valentine's Day strike. Duplessis was against it, obviously. But the thing is, this time, popular support went to the workers. In general, people were kind of like, yeah, you know what? Actually, these guys, why shouldn't they get a bit of a raise? You know, why, why should they breathe all that asbestos in anyways? <laughs> and the media definitely took up the cause. Like, it was very much a pet cause of the, of the newspapers at the time. This is actually where you start seeing the development of some of the uh, the intellectual class that's going to come up in the in the '60s in Quebec. So you're going to see uh, this is the first kind of big action for Gérard Pelletier, who was uh, at the time the lead reporter on Le Devoir. He'll be a cabinet member someday. He'll end up being a Canadian diplomat uh, to the UN. Important guy. You get Jean Marchand who was a union leader at the time. He also ended up being an MP and would uh, eventually get appointed to the Senate, Canadian Senate. Once you get appointed, you are there for life. It's a big deal. And Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the father of our current prime minister. And I would say one of the three most famous Canadian prime ministers. He had a massive impact on our on our country. Yeah. Um, some people still really hate the guy. Generally, really? though. Oh, yeah. Generally pretty well regarded, though. That's a long time to hate somebody. You know, like, he, do I, I don't even think about, I mean, I'll, I'll show my political stripes for a second. I don't think about Stephen Harper anymore. I didn't like, I didn't, I didn't like the guy, but I don't think about him anymore. But okay. First of all, no comment. Uh, second of all, <laughs> my, my policy has been to, to try and keep uh, more or less closed on stuff like that on this podcast. Um, that's current events. We talk about history, but second of all, I don't, think it would be unreasonable to say that Stephen Harper had a much smaller impact on Canadian politics and society than Pierre Trudeau did. Right. And not everybody was happy necessarily about the impacts that he had on society. For example, uh, on the social end of things, Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister under whom some of our more progressive uh, social policies were put in place. Famously, the, the statement about the state has no place in the bedrooms of our nation, uh, under which uh, homosexuality was decriminalized. Uh, well, what else did he do? He had the death penalty abolished. He had, uh, I believe, uh, some of the restrictions on abortion were at least relaxed under him, if not abolished. I can't remember for sure. He made some pretty sweeping like social changes uh, that, that not everybody loves, which is, you know. Yeah still kind of resonates through our society today. And also on the political side, you know, I mean, he re he repatriated our constitution, which I don't think anyone disagrees that doing it was a bad idea, but I'm not sure everyone agrees that the way it was done was the best way. Yeah. So anyways. Fair enough. Enough about Trudeau's legacy. Also, I, I, I will note that Trudeau was prime minister until in 1984. So he had a long run. Like it's, it's relatively recent. Yeah. These three were known in... Quebec intellectual circles is the three wise men. 
they were prolific academic writers and they had a lot to say about Quebec and the place of Quebec in the world and in Canada and the future of Quebec and what a world after Duplessis was going to look like. Uh, because they had very strong ideas about it and they knew that the way that things stood was not the way that things were going to be for much longer. I think very shortly after this, everyone knew that they would end up in politics. It was pretty clear that they were angling that way. Although most people actually thought that Pelletier would be the one to end up as leader of the Liberal Party rather than Trudeau. And it was almost a last minute decision to go with Trudeau uh, instead, which is kind of interesting. But, yeah. Um, anyways. Especially Trudeau and Pelletier worked a lot on anti-Duplessis articles in Le Devoir and really got kind of public sentiment whipped up against these workers. And meanwhile, the strike is going on. Duplessis is a little bit out of touch with kind of the the sentiment of the the province, of, of the people. And he ends up sending in the cops to quell the protests. The company hired strike breakers to go in and agitate things. The the workers, after about six weeks, things started getting violent because they were dealing with strike breakers who intentionally make things violent. And the tracks into the mine were blown up with dynamite so that scabs couldn't even get in there anymore. Wow. Yeah, it was a big deal. Hundreds of people were arrested. Yeah. I understand why. The church came out, or at least a good portion of the church, came out in favor of the workers. Archbishop uh, of Montreal, Joseph Charbonneau, gave a pro-union speech and actually requested the Catholics help support the workers, spiritually and monetarily. Send them supplies, they need it. Which is a pretty bold uh, statement and a pretty bold break from the previous position but maybe a little bit more in line with sort of the the general social policies of the church. I don't know. It's hard yeah. to say. The strike went on for three, a full three months before it was finally broken up by the police very violently, and the workers went to the table. The, uh, the Archbishop of, of Quebec City, Maurice Roy, actually offered to act as mediator at the, at the trade negotiations. So that, like, like, a painting of that scene would be the best possible <laughs> representation of 1949 Quebec I can think of in my right. mind. And I don't know if that exists or not. I'm probably going to look into it after we record this. But the symbolism in that actual action that happened is just beautiful. Yeah. The workers got a small wage increase. There were some long-term improvements, but most dev- demands ended up being turned down. And not much came of the strike itself. But what's really important about the strike is that Quebec kind of returned a corner in terms of their feelings towards Duplessis, their feelings towards the people of Quebec themselves, the the common workers, the place of the church within the state, namely the fact that it's not on the same side of the bargaining table as the state, that it is, in fact, um, something slightly separate from both the people and the state. Right. That, That separation is very, very important. And... Yeah, the um, the strike ended and, you know, there was the odd strike going forward from there. But to a person, later Quebec intellectuals, especially during the 1960s, would point to this as a turning point in in Quebec history. And it's the moment when people stopped just accepting Duplessis as he was. And it would take a while for things to turn around, but it was considered a national moment of awakening. 
So I think that's a really good place to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to start talking about what's known as the quiet revolution, where the seeds that are planted in that strike uh, kind of finally bloom. Cool. That doesn't sound super exciting on its face, but I'm excited. (laughs) Back on HI 101 here with Paul McGowan. Hi. I was going to say hi and howdy, and I, I was neither. You know, let's just like stick with it as is. I like it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) We're going to talk about the quiet revolution. Yeah. The reason it's called the quiet revolution is because nobody really noticed that it was happening until it had basically already happened. The quiet revolution is very much a social revolution and a cultural revolution. And like there are some political ramifications of it, but the way they happened, it was either so slow and natural or so similar to what's happening in other parts of Canada that people didn't realize what an impact it was having on Quebec um, until it had already had those impacts and like Quebec had changed significantly. So let's get a little bit more specific and a little less obscure. Okay. After the asbestos strike, there was a massive current of resistance against Duplessis that came up. Uh, There was a paper known as the uh, Cité Libre, the, the free city, Uh, founded in 1950 uh, by Trudeau and some others. And it was basically just an anti-Duplessis publication. They published anti-Duplessis articles. That's all they did. But, I mean, it wasn't a smear piece. It wasn't just about picking things apart. It was about putting forward this alternate vision for Quebec. A lot of these guys who are working in on the Cité Libre and in other areas at this point in time are very much a different breed of Quebecer than what we've seen so far. They're not necessarily as in deep with the church, even though they're almost to a man, very religious. They are sometimes educated outside of the province, which kind of exposes them to new ideas, um, different ways of thinking about the world, sometimes makes them a lot sharper than their opponents, uh, just because they haven't been tested in the same ways, and often are less concerned with protectionism than they are with kind of proactively forging a strong identity for Quebec. A lot of what Duplessis is doing is trying to cling on to what Quebec is now and recognizing that it might be under threat by greater cultural forces from the rest of Canada, from the United States, from other vectors, but not necessarily knowing how to go about that other than sort of forbidding any change, which as we all know, works every single time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So more keeping everybody else out. Yeah, it's very protectionist. It's very isolationist. It's it's not generally of the 20th century. Right. Trudeau actually wanted to teach law. He was he was a lawyer at the well, at a number of different universities in in Quebec and found out later that he had been blacklisted by Duplessis as like an agitator. He was trouble. Right. And he, you know, he had actually been Harvard educated. He spoke both English and French absolutely fluently because of his uh, his family his his father was very very french his mother spoke english and he had this idea of a much stronger much more secular canada and 
again, I'm kind of focusing in on Trudeau a lot because he's a convenient point of focus. He's um, a lot of his ideas, number one, end up getting implemented through his becoming the prime minister of Canada for a very long time, but also because a lot of the ideas that he's working with are either inspired by other people or inspire other people in this in this very uh, in this one very strong movement towards uh, a Quebec identity. So he's he's sort of an easy point of focus. There are a lot of other people working this way, but we'll use him for the most part. Their ideas were anti-clerical, though not anti-Catholic. So they were against this idea of the the clergy having their fingers in every aspect of life. They felt like, wait, hey, hang on, maybe we would have a little bit better education if we had a ministry of education and not just these schools that are run mainly by nuns. Um, there weren't male school teachers in Quebec until the 50s. So with you, I mean, you're talking about like the, how the, the, the Catholic Church decided education in the province. So, I mean, was there a massive Catholic bureaucracy where they had people who, who specialized in kind of setting a curriculum and all that stuff? Or was it just like a central group of people who kind of, uh, you know, made do? It's kind of somewhere right between those two points. Okay. There are really strong traditions of very good education within the Catholic Church. The Jesuits especially are well known for having very good schools and uh, a very good curriculum and very good teachers. Like there is um, a certain weight given to the idea of going to a Jesuit school. However, a lot of the people in reality that would be teaching in some small Northern Quebec community would likely just be some nuns who were there as an act of charity and were doing their best to get by. That's part of the problem of running the education as they were. There is a massive disparity in the quality of education that people are getting, and it's almost entirely personal, like based on like the person running the education in that place. Right. So if you're in Montreal and you can afford to go to like one of the very good Jesuit schools, then yeah, you're going to get a fantastic edu- education. You're going to get a world-class education. If you're in some small town in the eastern uh, the eastern townships, I mean, probably just not. Probably you're going to be in like a little one room town ta- uh, schoolhouse with uh, with a with a nun who is just trying her best to make sure that you have the skills you need to get a mining or logging job. Yeah. Okay, I have another quick question. I feel like a lot of the time. You know, Montreal is is not the best barometer of the sentiment in the rest of Quebec. Mm-hmm. So uh, during this, you know, the the Duplessy years and then the kind of turn against him. I mean, was was Montreal kind of was there a difference in, in the way Quebec felt and the way Montreal felt about him? Yeah, I mean, uh, Montreal tended to be far more liberal than the rest of Quebec. It's just that the rest of Quebec is much bigger than Montreal. Yeah. And and it had always kind of been that way. Montreal was very much the center of this intellectual movement towards secularism that we're talking about here. And it was this uh, sort of influence spreading out from Montreal that would bring about the Quiet Revolution. Right. Um, I mean, Quebec City as well, to some extent, but not the same extent as Montreal. Yeah. This group was also um, very much pro-union, or at least pro-worker, and very pro-civil liberties. You know, the idea of the rights of the people, which, you know, hey, I think is generally something people can get behind. Eh, it's okay. <laughs> it's all right, I guess. 
And they were very much for exploring Quebec identity beyond its traditional interpretation, which is something that we've kind of delved into. There's also a group called the Rassemblement. There isn't a great translation. It's kind of like the like a like a gathering or like a, an assembly, sort of. Founded through the Cité, uh, Cité Libre, devoted to basically devoted entirely to turning Quebec, uh, turning public sentiment against Duplessis. Uh, and they did so not just through journalism, but also through political activism, through uh, art, uh, things like that. It's a very like it's a very late fifties idea. This sort of like little weird political art collective thing. Yeah. As the public in general saw the benefits of unionization, or at least workers' rights, and as the church came out more and more in support of it. Basically, the general trend of society was towards this idea of like, hey, maybe all these foreign owned companies that are coming in here and exploiting our resources and our labor aren't necessarily the best thing for us as Quebecers. And I mean, I don't think the church loved the unions, but I think they liked the foreign owners less. I think they saw them as maybe a potential danger to society. There's a lot of different motivations at play that are kind of forcing things towards, um, uh, you know, stronger personal rights and and more secular secularization and better training for workers, things like that. Duplessis died in 1959 while still in office. He had a he had a series of strokes. He was actually in the middle of showing a bunch of steel mill owners from the states around. Jeez. when he had these strokes so he was with a bunch of uh politicians and a bunch of american factory owners when he had these strokes which and again, he died on the job is kind of yeah yeah well i mean it, it, it a little bit a little while after but the strokes themselves yeah on the job right um, so like as as premier yeah his successor uh, a guy named paul sauvet died suddenly after only four months in office what so the union nationale was turned completely upside down by yeah. all this. They lost its founder and then they lost the founder's successor almost immediately after. And they were coming up on an election year. Wow. Here's the weird thing about Paul Sauvet. I have tried so hard to figure out why he died. He was 53. Yeah. He was a young man and he was sitting premier. And I can't find anywhere how he died. I was on the Assemblée Nationale's official biography page. The Assemblée Nationale is the uh, the Quebec uh, par- Parliament, basically the the provincial parliament. Yeah, their official biography of him, even in French, doesn't say how he died; just that he died. I I can't figure it out. Is there is there any sense that it was some kind of a conspiracy? Then, like, I mean, four months. And- I was talking to somebody else about this, and that was the first thing they said as well. And no, I don't think so. I just find it really weird that they don't mention anything because usually, even if it was unknown causes, they would say of unknown causes. Did he die in a really embarrassing way? That's. I'm leaning that way. I'm wondering because no one's saying. I don't. I, I don't want to disrespect the guy by like speculating, but. That's, I mean, yeah. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe. I don't know. I have no idea. I, If, if anyone knows how Paul Sauvé died, please hit me up. Please at me with his death, death cause. <laughs> I want to know so badly. I spent, I spent 45 minutes last night trying to figure out how this man died. I can't find it. Anyways. I'm kind of hoping you don't find it because I feel like that warrants like a trip to Quebec to figure it out. I... But, how the Assemblée Nationale won't tell me. 
But he, he's got to have family still alive. <laughs> Bonjour, comment ça va? <laughs> Votre grand-père? Um. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it's it's an awkward conversation, especially if they didn't want people to know. But pourquoi est-ce qu'il est mort? <laughs> that was that's as further than I would have gotten. I just asked a hypothetical question. Your grandfather, why is he dead? <laughs> that's what that French was. <laughs> French teacher would be so proud of me right now. <laughs> oh wow, we're off track here. The liberals win for the first time since 1940. And basic, I mean, basically because uh, the Union Nationale is just in disarray, or? I mean, yes, in a very simple way of putting it. No, in a much more complex way of right. putting it. In, in the way that everything's been kind of. Yeah. I mean, without Duplessis being there, I mean, I don't think they really had much hope of winning an election as, as confidently as, as they had been. When somebody is premier that long, people just kind of get used to it. Like you don't have term limits on premiers. And sometimes people just get used to people being in political positions. Yeah. We're going to come up on a mayor of, of Montreal who is there for like forever. Jean Drapeau. I don't know if you've, you've well, probably. I know Jean Drapeau Park. Yeah, yeah he does have a park <laughs> named after him. That's uh, true. But what's a long time? Like I'm used to Canadian politics where, you know, it's 12 years for a prime minister. So what's what's a long time? Uh, he was mayor from, let's see, 1954 to 57, took three years off, or was defeated for three years, and then he was mayor straight from 1960 to 1986. Okay, that's a long time. That's a long time. That's a really long time. I, and I mean, I I don't know this off, of my, off the top of my head, but how long was Hazel mayor for? I would say, I want to say more than 30 years. I think she might have beat him. But Probably. I can't say for sure. Um, this is this is the the longtime mayor of of Mississauga, Ontario, who just yeah. won't quit. Was was mayor into her nineties, I believe. Yeah. Before she was, I mean, it was just recently that she. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. I'll, yeah. I'll look it up and stick it in the notes. It's ridiculous, but I, I don't think we're I don't think we're unique in that. I think there's a lot of places that, uh, you know, without term limits, just kind of get used to having the same people around. And yeah. Well, I mean, how long was um, how long was Ted Kennedy? a uh member of the house jeez i don't know it was it was like 45 years or something like that it's a long time i mean i'm i'm guessing at that 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 number may be wrong but it was it was decades yeah so yeah the liberals are elected under a guy named jean lesage and he while absolutely not a member of this like radical weird art collective rassemblement had a lot of very similar ideas about the direction that Quebec should maybe be going in the new era. I mean, he, he ran on uh, a, a couple of different um, slogans. Il faut que ça which is like, it has to change. Things have to change. And also uh, one that's kind of stuck around a little bit more called Maître uh, Chez Nous, which means masters of our own homes. I like that. This idea that Listen, we're not right now. We need to take control of Quebec. Quebecers, Quebecois need to be in control of Quebec. Right. Something that very much comes out of, uh, especially World War One, um, but there's also a revival after World War Two, is this idea of the nation state that every nation should have its own state, that there should be self determination, there should be sovereignty, 
And in Canada, it's really contentious to talk about whether or not Quebec is its own nation, partially because the current world order is one nation, one state. And by affirming the fact that Quebec is a nation, you're tacitly recognizing the fact that they may have a good claim to sovereignty. Yeah. That being said, looking at their history, I'm not certain other than that reason how controversial it is to call Quebec a separate nation, especially when you look at what it takes to be a nation. Uh, Things like shared history, shared language, shared culture. Those are all things that Quebec shares. Yeah. Very much. And 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 I think any arguments uh, beyond that have a very, very political agenda to them. But working within the confines of the system that existed and the legal framework that it existed, Jean Lesage went, well, there's things that we can do right now. That's fine. And uh, went to work doing things like reestablishing a ministry of education, which has the effect of taking control away from the church, taking authority away from the church, right? Uh, also has the effect of a better prepared workforce because they're better educated. It also gives them a chance to instill Quebecois values in children through the school system. We don't tend to talk about that as an aspect of the education system, but it absolutely is. Right. right? There's this idea that there are certain things that you want a good citizen to know. And by mandating a, a government run curriculum, you can make sure that these children are told those things. Yeah. And that's important to a society like Quebec where, yes, they're absolutely in the minority of people in Canada. There is an English majority and there is a real worry at this point in time that the French language will be lost, that the Quebecois will be assimilated into the rest of Canada, that they will lose what is distinct about them. Right. So, sure, let's start with education and let's make sure that we have, you know, let's make sure that we give people the tools they need to actually break into those management positions. Let's get them to be leaders. Why not? There's no reason they need to be slaving away at the bottom rungs all the time. He nationalized hydroelectricity in Quebec. This had actually been started in the 40s with that one little run of uh, of liberal government between 1940 and 44 in among Duplessis era. Uh, The the premier was a guy named uh, Adelard Godbout. He'd already started that then. And as soon as Duplessis got elected again he put a hard stop on it because he went nationalized electricity this sounds like communism so dumb anyways there were all these like little pockets of like private um electric companies all over quebec and it was kind of a mess and so lesage basically went around buying up all these little uh companies uh using government money and standardized the electricity uh industry in quebec he brought it all up to standard spec which is a very good thing quebec has a lot of rivers that can be dammed like a lot of rivers that can be dammed it is one of the you know i didn't i didn't check the i didn't check the like fact page on like natural resources that quebec has i'm guessing hydroelectricity is one of the top resources it has yeah it consistently exports power to the united states and to ontario right which makes the government a lot of money which gives it more money to pour into infrastructure and other improvements. This is a very good move for the province. It also allowed them to electrify rural areas that wouldn't necessarily be profitable for an independent um, hydroelectric company to do, 
which again improves the lives of normal everyday Quebecers. I, all this stuff just like it, it just makes so much sense. Yeah, no, it sounds like so far he's doing a bang up job. Mm-hmm. Uh, he took over healthcare from the church, right? Standardization, uh, modernization, all good stuff. He set up the QPP, the Quebec Pension Plan, right? Um, at this point in time, the entirety of Canada is setting up like a national pension plan, um, and every other province pays into the CPP. The provinces were given the option to opt out, and they just went like, no, this this is fine. If you guys are arranging it, we'll go with it, except for Quebec, because they were like, okay, well, we're already in the middle of arranging this. We don't want the federal government to have control of something that in the Canadian, well, what was a constitution at the time, it's not the same as the current one, uh, is technically under provincial jurisdiction. We don't want to give that up to the federal government if we don't have to. And so while the CPP was being set up with kind of a vague idea of where they wanted it to go the qpp was set up with this really strong vision of taking all of this money that's being paid into this pension plan reinvesting it into uh quebecois owned businesses to help stimulate french-owned economy and using that as a way to grow the fund so using the people's own pension plans to benefit the entire economy great idea yeah love it uh the qpp is still separate by the way Uh, at this point in time, the church is also going through some very significant changes. The Second Vatican Council is happening between 1962 and 65, which has some like overarching impacts on basically all Catholics. Some people who lived through that time will tell you they barely noticed the change. Some people will tell you that, you know, nothing has been the same since. It's kind of, you know, any 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 ecumenical council that happens like that that brings in big reforms is going to impact different people in different ways yeah but one of the things that it did impact quite a bit was people who decided to go into the religious life so specifically nuns and and monks other other people who are kind of living under religious orders the number of people living that life dropped dramatically which meant that there were less religious that were available to act as doctors or teachers or all the other support uh, roles that they had been filling in quebec culture the church had been like, I, I find their idea of Quebec really interesting because both Duplessis and the church, but especially the church, looked at Quebec as this time capsule of a better version of France. Okay. The conquest had happened in 1763. In 1789, the French Revolution began. So in 1763, the British took New France away they protected its culture under these very specific laws that basically said, keep your religion, keep your language, keep your ways of life. Tucked it away, kept it safe. And meanwhile, during the French Revolution, the France that used to be very, very good to the Catholic Church turned very, very mean against the Catholic Church. They did a lot of stuff that involved repossessing church property and and taking money and artwork from the church and and driving priests out of the country and it was a it was an ugly time to be catholic uh, especially clergy in france and so ever since the revolution they kind of looked at quebec as this version of france that had never fallen right and that's why they had been so invested in all of this and i think it really took until the 60s for them to kind of shake that 
conception of new of of new france of quebec and it took something a lot bigger and more difficult to focus on like the second vatican council to kind of distract them from that idea um they tried to hang on to quebec as long as they could until it was basically taken from them but it was easier to take because of the council yeah if that makes sense yeah New labor code was put in place in 1964, more workers' rights, things like, I don't know, you know workplace safety, lame stuff like that. <laughs> Peltier, Marchand, and Trudeau all ran for the first time in 1965. Uh, all three were elected as liberal MPs in their respective ridings. That's uh, members of parliament. And their idea, we talked a little bit before, but their idea of Quebec identity was about moving forward and the way they saw this moving forward was as a distinct but very much integral part of Canada. We're going to talk a lot about the difference between federalism and separatism later. And they saw nationalism as a bad thing. They saw nationalism as a problematic concept. And a lot of that comes out of what we saw during World War II with fascism. Yeah. They saw nationalism as we're, we're, we're going to get into some very like heavy political theory type stuff here. They saw nationalism as a way to unite people who otherwise don't really have anything in common under a common cause against a common enemy. And this is very much informed by socialist theory, by even Marxist theory. But at the same time, I don't think that necessarily makes it wrong. I've seen very strong arguments for this being like a third axis on like the political placement axis where you see kind of um level of state involvement and level of taxes taken kind of thing right so uh, axis between socialist and uh, libertarian and then conservative and liberal there should be one added for uh, i've heard proposed there should be one added for level of nationalism okay the idea basically being that before the before the concept of nationalism was introduced in the French Revolution, which is really where it takes off, you don't really necessarily feel any kinship with the people who are a million times richer than you and are forcing you to go off and fight in wars that you don't understand. You feel kinship with people who are like you living a peasant life. And that really the fact that you guys live in the same country or even the same town doesn't really give you much in common because your lives are completely different. Nationalism gives you a concept to rally around where geography matters and language matters more than necessarily the actual life you lead. Yeah. And so these three guys in Montreal are anti-nationalism. Yeah. They think that Quebec identity is important, but they don't think that Quebec nationalism is a good thing. Okay. And they see those as two distinct concepts. And the answer that they see to that sort of contradiction is federalism which is the system that canada has yeah basically they see federalism as a version of retaining a distinct identity and regional autonomy while still retaining the benefits of being a part of a larger political body that being canada this idea that quebec can be its own society that's fine it can also be part of canada those don't have to uh, contradict each other, which is ideally essentially what we have now. 
maybe practically not necessarily because of that nationalism aspect, right? Yeah. That idea that because it's a distinct identity, they should have a distinct state, which is what nationalism comes down to. Uh, the, the concept that the nation state is the best version of a political organization. Yeah. These, these men said, no, we can be, we can be a distinct society within a larger political body. And that can benefit everyone that's involved in this federation. That's what federalism is about. It's not about saying that Quebec identity doesn't matter or that they want to assimilate or anything like that. Most federalists have a very strong idea of what it means to be Quebecois and want to protect that. They just see a place for that within the larger context of Canada. At the same time, a separatist movement is, is growing. These are the exact people that the three wise men are warning against. And so is this is this separatist movement, I mean, has this been kind of kicking around forever? Or is this more of a response to the kind of secularization that's been happening? Both. Okay. This particular secularist movement is absolutely a growth from the Quiet Revolution. It's a growth from this newfound strength in, in Quebec, this newfound um, both cultural and economic, because Quebec is getting richer. It's getting richer faster than anybody else in this period. It is getting smarter. It is getting a clearer idea of who it is. And they see that as exactly what we just talked about, which is, well, we are a distinct nation. We need our own state. We are being oppressed within the larger context of Canada. And the only way to end that is sovereignty. There have been other separatist movements uh, before this. Most notably, there was a, a rebellion, 1837 to 1838, that was suppressed. But, you know, it's it's cropped up both as an intellectual idea and as the occasional little uprising that gets quashed uh, now and again throughout Quebec history. But... The 60s is where the what, what we think of now as the separatist movement in Quebec really takes off. And it's this growth uh, out of this, this new, stronger Quebec identity. And I mean, I know that the way I'm talking about this, I, I'm, I'm probably very clearly coming out uh, on the federalist side of things. I should also note that like, as an Anglo-Canadian, most Anglo-Canadians are very strongly federalist. Yeah. It's a little bit easier to see a place for Quebec within your own society when you're the majority of the society. Of the society. It's a little bit different when you're actually living that experience and especially different when you've just come out of a period of, of well, that was known as the Great Darkness. <laughs> um, <laughs> that doesn't help things. And, yeah. and so I, I don't mean to seem unsympathetic to the, uh, to the cause of, of separatism or um, at least un not understanding of where they're coming from. I mean, you you look at you look at the the process after World War One of splitting up the Balkans into nation states, or uh, the process after World War Two that's happening at this exact same time of splitting up Africa into uh, something that resembles countries for the first time ever, and all anyone is talking about is self determination, and to be in the middle of a cultural and social movement at that point in history and have someone say, but you guys are different. You guys don't get that and not really have a good argument as to why. Yeah. I mean, how, how could that not be frustrating? We talked about Jean Drapeau before. Mayor of Montreal for forever. Forever. 
he had actually uh, been involved in the asbestos strikes as well. He had provided legal representation to workers. He's been mayor or he was mayor of Montreal long enough that he did a lot, like a lot of things that his name gets attached to. He got them the 76 Olympics. Yeah. Um, which got him an interesting nickname. He once said that uh, the Olympics will no more put, uh, are, are no, no more able to put Montreal into debt than a man is able to get pregnant. And with the billion dollar debt that they ended up having to pay off, he's known as the only uh, the only man ever to be pregnant in Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> the only man to ever become pregnant. Yeah, that, that debt thing soured people a little bit. Yeah. He got them... He got them a National League baseball team. Yes, he did. Montreal Expos. Rest in peace. Yeah. I mean, he couldn't get them an American League team, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, who needs the DH? (laughs) But one of the biggest things that he did for Quebec was the 67 World Expo. You've probably heard it. 1967 was the centennial year for Canada. And he got the bid for a thing that still happens, which is World Expos. I yeah. did not know World Trade Fairs still happen. Oh, yeah. But I they're like a up. really ir- irregular thing. Like it's like every two or three or five years. Yeah. There, there was one in uh, Italy, I think, was the most recent one in like 2010 or something like that. And then they do like part World Fairs. Anyways, it yeah. seems very like whenever I think World Fair, I think like Chicago 1896. Yeah. I think of the uh, the Simpsons episode where they go to Tennessee and there was the, uh, oh, the big sphere. That was part of some World's Fair. Anyways. Anyways. Um, yeah, I, I guess they still happen. But it was it was, it was was a big deal. And, and that was actually considered the most successful expo of the 20th century. It was a huge deal. There uh, were so many people there. As far as expos go. Yeah, as far as expos <laughs> go. Yeah, no, I mean, um, like, I, I know some of my aunts and uncles were, were down at that. Yeah. Like it was, it was a, it was a big thing. Everyone went down at the expo, Charles de Gaulle, the, you know, president of France, like one of the, I, I believe he was voted uh, greatest Frenchman of all time in some poll, which I mean, man, that's some stiff competition, but you know, he led the French resistance through the second world war. He founded the fifth Republic. Like the, the current French government is built by Charles de Gaulle. Um, he was at the expo. Or rather, he was in town for the expo. Yeah. And he was giving a speech at the Montreal City Hall. There's a big balcony above the entrance. And he was he was giving this speech. And during this speech, he and and he he confirmed afterwards that this was actually planned. He shouted down to the crowd, Vive le Québec libre. Long live free Quebec. Which the crowd went like nuts for like they blew up some people very angry some people very excited right because that's like a very loaded thing to say in the climate of like newfound separatism and so when you say that that he later said that it was planned like he meant it to be as inflammatory as some people took it he knew exactly what he was saying yeah he He wasn't just saying like live the strong quebec he meant free literally he he first said vive le Quebec. Right. They cheered and then he said vive le Quebec libre. Wow. He had this idea that France had somehow like let New France down. You know, 200 years before. Yeah. 
and that he had a duty to like do something about it with a speech Mm -hmm. yeah things got so heated like pearson was uh, the the prime minister at the time uh lester pearson he was ticked he made a, a public statement basically saying like there aren't any canadians that need freeing canadians are free like what are you talking about get out of here he was supposed to go to ottawa to meet with pearson he cut his trip short things got so heated over this statement and went back to france and never came to canada again right the interesting thing about this statement was that at the same time france was actually dealing with its own sort of separatist movement in Brittany, and trudeau commented publicly kind of mused to himself what charles de gaulle would have done if uh somebody had come to france and said vive les bretons libres yeah and Charles de Gaulle got really mad about that. Like, he was really, really touchy about it. But, like, I mean, I, I understand what he's saying. The double standard there is really tricky. Yeah. There's a lot of little pockets of, of independence movements constantly happening around the world. There's there's not, like, that's that's not something that's unique about Quebec. You and I feel it particularly keenly because we're not that far away. Um, it's kind of hanging over our lives in, in, in some sense. Uh, we certainly feel it more than say the 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 movements in uh in spain or in uh in belgium yeah um but you know it's it's there's there's always groups that are kind of looking for more representation well and and recognition i mean international or political recognition of those movements is a is a huge deal right like it's like Mm -hmm. if you you know recognize that that a certain state exists that maybe doesn't yet exist that's always a huge deal that is one of the steps to statehood yeah is 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 international recognition and i mean obviously this isn't necessarily like an official like statement from the government of france but like at the same time yikes you're stirring the pot what are you doing man it was it was very inflammatory especially in a time where you know the government is actually trying to work the the quebec government is actually trying to work to make the lives of 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 the people of quebec much better in an orderly fashion yeah and are actually having a lot of success i mean we're talking about seven years since uh since the liberals took power in quebec that's not that long that's a very short amount of time and like yeah people are uh, people are impatient i get that like yo give them give them like a little bit of time (laughs) (laughs) the same year uh 1967 rené levesque founded what's known as the Movement for Sovereignty Association. The idea being his his vision for a free Quebec is sovereignty, so political independence, with, uh, with an economic association to go along with it. So this idea of basically a special relationship in terms of tariffs and other trade deals, uh, potentially sharing the same currency, uh, things like that. So it's like this very odd amalgamation like of, a, like of sovereignty and sovereignty yeah yeah it's just not quite sovereignty yeah but that's what he felt was the best first step for quebec he actually compared it to the then emerging uh european community which would eventually turn into the european union so basically he was pointing to it going like here we'll just do it like this like we're our own country but like there's certain considerations that are given to uh, members of this union. Right. Um, And in this particular case, those members would be Quebec and Canada, which is interesting because 
people who are founding the European community were actually um, talking at the time about how probably political unity was eventually where this would end up. And that was actually seen as like a good thing. Yeah. But that that's not necessarily as important as, as how useful that analogy is for what he wanted Quebec to be. Sovereignty Association had mixed acceptance by different groups. Some of them were fine with it. Some of them saw it as a reasonable concession with an eye towards further improvement. And some of them saw it as just completely unacceptable. If we don't have complete sovereignty, why even bother? But in general, it ended up being the most popular movement. In 1968, he uh, his, his group, um, the MSA, merged with the uh, Ralliement National. They published something known as the Option Quebec, which was his guideline for how he saw Sovereignty Association working moving forward. And they renamed the organization the Parti Québécois, which still exists today as a provincial party in Quebec. And they are the separatist party in the Quebec provincial government. And that's how the PQ was founded. Um, known affectionately by Quebecers as uh, the Piquists. The Piquists? PQ. Oh, okay. PQ read together as a, as a word. Oh, that's okay. Like calling them Pequists, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. They like doing that with acronyms sometimes. I think it's kind of huh. cute. Piquists? Eh, eh, it's okay. <laughs> Trudeau was elected prime minister in 1968. That's huge. That's three years after he was even made a, an MP. But he was very popular. He was an incredibly charismatic man. People really, really liked him. They really, really liked his family. Yeah, this this was the first Trudeau mania. They when they when they say that about his son as prime minister, they're referencing his dad. He was just like a really cool guy. He was a lot older than people necessarily realize when he became prime minister. But yeah. he seemed like really hip with the youth. He very much related to them. And he was very media savvy. There are a lot of very good quotes that come out of Pierre Trudeau. And probably like if we started talking about it, you'd remember more than you realized. Yeah. There's, there's, you know, there, ah, he, he once pirouetted behind the queen, which is just a wonderful little video. That's just not something you do, but he did it. You know, he swore in parliament, which is a thing that just no one ever did. You know, it, it was it was just it was a very very I mean after Pearson very fresh prime minister yeah, and he put the Official Languages Act into place in 1969, which actually a lot of people in Quebec were really mad about. Really, well, I guess because you're recognizing English in Quebec. No, no. Again, we're getting into like very subtle like cultural stuff because the wording of the Official Languages Act is that Canada is a multicultural society within a bilingual framework, which uh -huh. suggests that there isn't only two cultures. They were worried that this was opening the door to even less French representation. Canada has always been structured as a country of two languages, of two societies, which, I mean, is already problematic in that it completely ignores all First Nations peoples. But, you know, historically speaking, comes out of that agreement between the inhabitants of New France and their conquerors in the form of the British. 
and everything about Canada had been arranged in that way when uh, Canada was divided into Upper Canada and Lower Canada, one for the English, one for the French, and then later into Ontario and Quebec. It's always been kind of built around that framework, and they were worried that if anything, by setting up the language this way, it was actually eroding this, even though it was making sure that French was available in government services anywhere they went, which is very important, it was still doing more harm than good. Also, I mean, yeah, there is a small amount of that not wanting to provide government services in English as well as French. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It, it was So it was their issue was because... more with the, with the multicultural part of mm-hmm. the statement than, yeah. than the bilingual part. Yes. Okay. Uh, French Canada has always had a bit of an issue with other cultures. They're... I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm trying not to make too many sweeping statements here, but they tend to be less accepting of multiculturalism than other parts of Canada. And that's, that's a really tricky thing to say, because, I mean, if you're in Montreal, it's probably fine. And if you're out in the, you know, in, in, in some very like conservative region of Canada, uh, it's probably going to be really hard to accept. Like it's, it's, I, I understand that I'm putting myself in hot water by saying that, but the reason behind that is that the Quebecois already see themselves as a minority themselves within Canada and adding other cultures to that mix is only going to anyone that they add to Canada that isn't French is just more people who are not French and they see that as a threat. Yeah. Again, it's, it's, it's hard to phrase in a way that doesn't sound terrible, but it's also kind of an understandable statement from this point of view of, of a very much a minority culture. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they have the, the, uh, the word for anyone who is an English or French, uh, in, in, Quebec French is is allophones, so all anything people who speak anything other than French or English. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Allophone. It's it's yeah. Anyways, the fact that they've ca- categorized them that way though. Yeah. Like as just like a lump category of person yeah. who isn't French and isn't English. There's something else. The fact that that exists there in such a definitive way is is kind of representative of that sort of suspicion towards anyone who isn't yeah it explains a lot yeah especially especially some some new stories you hear out of uh out of quebec yeah. um, again not to not to get too current but um they're mm-hmm. especially in, in smaller communities they're they're very suspicious of anyone who isn't um who isn't very definitely quebecois yeah while all of this separatist um, sentiment is building politically and Levesque is building his political parties and looking into the processes behind referendum and looking into the constitutionality of, of breaking apart the country of Canada from a legal and, and political standpoint. There are other people who are less academic and less patient. And throughout the 60s, People emerge that aren't willing to wait for a nice, clean Canadian version of separatism. And they're going to turn to violence. And the main group uh, that's going to come out of this movement is known as the FLQ, the Front de Libération du Québec. 
the the Quebec Liberation Front. Or in French, the FLQ. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> During the 1960s, the FLQ is going to set off more than 150 bombs. I knew, a, I don't want to give it, well, I don't want to get ahead, but I did not know that about the bombs. More than 50 of those are going to be in 1968 alone. They escalate rapidly. They target mainly economic centers, mainly Anglo-owned economic centers. They were formed in 1963. They are this radical Marxist group. Uh, they kind of weave this, this communist um, revolutionary theory into what they want Quebec to be. They see the entire province as a nation of oppressed workers. They want a French worker state and they want to be free from Anglo-Saxon imperialism. There's a lot of very heavy rhetoric. And... By the time the 1960s are over, they're going to go way, way, way too far. I'm looking at our time, though, and this is possibly the best cliffhanger this show has ever seen. So I think we're going to stop it there for today. All right. When we come back next time, we're going to talk about what it is that they did. Oh, man, you want a whole part. We didn't even get to that. I, I'm not even sorry. I'm not even sorry. I love this. I'm excited. Over the course of a decade, Quebec had transformed from a lagging society traditionally seen as politically and socially repressed into a hotbed of federalist political theory and citizens heavily engaged with defining French identity in Canada. But running parallel to all of this was a movement of radical militants convinced that the only way to carve a place for Quebec in the world was to do so violently. Next time, we'll follow their growth until the point where they can no longer be ignored by the Canadian public. That episode will be up on August 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.